This episode of Troxel is supported by Confluence, a small conference event for AEC professionals and technology providers to discuss industry trends and ideas together. It's put on by the fine folks at Avail. You can learn more about the upcoming invite-only events during this episode. This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Avail helps AECO firms better manage, organize, and navigate information faster. Visit getavail.com today. This episode is sponsored by ArcIT. ArcIT only supports architecture, design, and engineering firms at a price that would pleasantly surprise you. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the coevolution of architecture and technology. A little bit of housekeeping up front here. A quick reminder that you can support the Troxel podcast directly through membership. Member perks include an ad-free version of the podcast with your own private feed, ad-free full show notes with links and guest bios right in your podcast app, and ad-free Troxel AEC tech newsletters in your inbox each time one is sent out. Go to troxel.co, that's T-R-X-L dot C-O, and click on one of the subscribe buttons to directly support what I'm doing here. Just know that I am grateful no matter how you choose to support the show, either by listening to the sponsored episodes or through direct support. I really appreciate you for listening. All right. In this episode, I welcome Scott Reynolds back to the podcast. Scott is a co-founder and CEO of Upcodes. He comes from a background in architecture, having worked for several years in Hong Kong and New York City at firms including both Cohn, Peterson, Fox, and Hassel. Being a Y Combinator alumni, he has leveraged both industry and startup experience to launch and scale Upcodes. In this episode, we discuss Upcodes' latest product, Copilot. Copilot leverages AI to make the building code more accessible. And I have to say, a much better way to interpret and parse the code. I had the opportunity to take it for a test drive myself, and I have to say, I think this is a game changer. I asked Copilot about a project I'm considering doing here in my home in Oregon. So I set the parameters to the county I'm located in, chose residential code and the code year, and simply asked it what the requirements were for my project regarding exiting and egress. It answered my questions quickly and presented the requirements in an easy to understand way, which may be the best interaction I've ever had with the code. Today's conversation covers the journey of upcodes, the challenges of democratizing access to the building code, and the potential for innovation in the compliance space. So now without further ado, I bring you Scott Reynolds. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. Great to have you again. So good to be back. Yeah, thank you, Evan, for uh, inviting me back. Yeah, I think uh, December 2020, it was like lockdown time. Last time we were officially on the on the podcast together. So a lot has changed. And I think the last time that we talked, it was really regarding the the lawsuit that you guys were involved in. Is there any update that you want to provide before we jump into like the real topic of this conversation? Well, first I'll mention, wow, the time really flies. I can't believe it's been 
that I long know. since we uh, last connected. Right. Um, in terms of update, not not a whole lot actually. It just continues to kind of drag on. We got a lot of um, I say pretty significant milestones in terms of wins and more and more case law, but uh, these things always get dragged out. Uh, yeah. The American legal system, you know, allows for these things to span over years and years. So we kind of push forward through that. Um, you know, hopefully in the sometime in the future there'll be some kind of um, I think positive, you know, collaboration or or end result to to mm -hmm. it all. But um, long story short, continues to to uh, drag on. Unfortunately, I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. You have been on the podcast a couple times before, and so like I don't want to dwell on that for too too much here. That the whole idea of copywriting the building code was kind of the topic of that conversation, and who should be able to or not be able to do that. Obviously, upcodes. This is your livelihood and you are trying to make it easy for architects and other building design professionals to access the building code. You're obviously doing a ton of work to kind of democratize access to that and provide innovation on top of that. The way people uh, engage the building code, uh, I would hope to make it easier, right? This has always been one of those things where it's like you go to the wizard in the corner of the office who knows the ins and outs of the and they they have their three ring binder and they're flipping through and they've slipped the the addendum sheets in and and it's this you look at that whole thing and it's like there's got to be a better way man and obviously this is what upcodes is all about and speaking of innovation I want to talk about what you guys have just recently announced which is copilot and uh and I, so so I'm just going to turn it over to you man like give us the update and tell us uh what it's going on with upcodes and copilot. Yeah, absolutely. And and thanks for the for the lead in there. So so just going back to what you mentioned, just free and open access is a huge pillar of of what we do. And a lot of the previous years of development has just been bringing together this online library. So today we host over 5 million sections of code. So spans from building code, plumbing code, fire codes, accessibility codes, kind of through the gambit. And we're just bringing on more and more but as you know, your background in architecture, I'm sure you know, that's really, really hard to parse. Mm. Historically, we've had things like a search engine. So you can go into a jurisdiction like Massachusetts, Florida, California, mm -hmm. and kind of cut across that jurisdiction, the codes. But ultimately, it's still coming down to you to figure out what's relevant, what's not relevant. Um, we do things like diagrams and educational content to help people through. But with a lot of other industries, we had our kind of eyes on these AI models coming out, the LLMs, mm -hmm. which seemed really promising for parsing large, large uh, data sets, specifically text. And I think those are expanding to more things like images. Um, but the, or what we are perceiving is the, the bread and butter of those LLMs is parsing text. Mm -hmm. And we looked at it and said, hey, this, this could be a really big opportunity for us because we have this massive library of text. Can we harness it can we can we right. bring that into the product seems obvious right it's like you've got this giant corpus of training data which is all of the model codes that are out there uh, different jurisdictions you've already mapped what is appropriate for where uh to when it comes to the different ways in which people engage the the building code on every project that is probably a little bit different and this whole idea of kind of augmenting the existing system to be more accessible to more people 
because, and this is all, like I said, we, we went to the wizard in the corner <laughs> because they're the ones who had the expertise, the wisdom of working with the building code and code officials and kind of that handshake that happens when you submit a drawing set and specifications where they're working through all of those comments that come up ad hoc on the, you know, right then and how, because the building code does get interpreted by different people. It's not just black and white. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. It's like, it's full of creative workarounds and like actually kind of interpreting the code is a creative process in and of itself. Right. And so there's so much going on there and it seems like there's so much potential for a company like Upcodes or somebody else to augment the existing system to make it and i know we've had conversations in the past where it's like could could you and i think copilot's the perfect name for this could you make it so that you as upcodes ask me a series of questions as the designer and then present uh some you know a path to go down and and we've had some interesting conversations about that before in the past yeah yeah absolutely and there's so much to unpack with what yeah. you just mentioned. So maybe I can Do touch it. on a couple of the earlier topics. Yeah. Cool. So, so what you mentioned about bringing the, the codes together. Um, so we just adopt or, or host the adopted laws mm -hmm. and that includes incorporating the amendments. So the interesting thing, when you compare, say like let a generic, um, LLM, like open AI's, uh, mm -hmm. chat GPT or, or Google Bard, where we differ, I think in a pretty significant way is roping in the amendments. So if you're say Massachusetts or, or um, Connecticut, and you have a separate set of amendments that get incorporated into the adopted model code, that's that kind of composite view of the code is what we operate on. And I think it's a subtle but pretty important difference because it's bringing a lot more predictability into the codes that, that, it's look, that we're training it on and that we're bringing up mm -hmm. as references in, in the answers. And then another point you, you raised is, is this uh, kind of wizard. You know, in, in the office, you have maybe mm -hmm. two, three technical experts. Let's say if you're a 50, 60 person size company. And a, a big focus for us was how do we democratize the codes more and more? How do we make it such that if someone's just joining the workforce, let's say they're coming out of school, you know, first, um, maybe first position or a couple of years in, or you're jumping between jurisdictions. So you're maybe you work in uh, California, you want to jump into Wyoming or another state, how do you actually get familiar with those codes or a different project type? Let's say you yeah. do mixed use resi and you're jumping into commercial. Mm -hmm. um, how do we make it so these individuals can answer their own code questions? So mm -hmm. exactly like you said, back in the day, you just go to that, that code expert who uh, inevitably gets underwater with the amount of yeah. code requests coming in. And, right. and we, we see that role as being very, very critical, mm -hmm. but hopefully we can alleviate some of that pressure on the individual to, to answer, you know, across all people in offices, uh, code questions. There's other parallels in architectural practice that I'm familiar with that I think are all in this category where it's like, there's, there's a couple of gatekeepers in the office who do this thing and they are totally drowning. Right. And so mm -hmm. visual people who are doing like, you know, pre, you know, they're doing visualization on projects. They're doing the high end V-Ray renders. There's only a couple of those people. If the, an office even has those, sometimes most of the time they're outsourcing that. Um, 
specifications writers are another people person like role in this category where it's like there's one or two if a firm is lucky a lot of times i think they're also hiring out to consultants and then there's these you know senior project technical architects who are the ones who are the gatekeeper of and and not in a bad way it's just like that that's the role either that they've chosen or fallen into and and they are being inundated like you said with every single team coming to them and so by providing a tool that allows anyone and and so now in this category the upcodes category i think of something like enscape with the visualization example right it's like well now anybody can do pretty good renderings and that takes a huge load off of the visualization team because now they can focus on just the high-end stuff and they have time in their lives now to do some r d into the latest visualization techniques same thing goes here. It's like if you can take some of the load off of those incredibly important roles of uh, the, the person who really understands the building code, they can then focus on the really hard problems to solve and not just the run-of-the-mill day-to-day FAQ style stuff that they're used to fielding from every single person in the office. So I think that this is, like you said, there's a huge opportunity here. Obviously, you guys foresaw that and and are building a tool to do that. But I'm also wondering just like what have you seen as far as adoption when it comes to this thing from the the rank and file people in the office and actually successfully starting to navigate the building code, which is is just kind of this, you know, encyclopedic uh, undertaking. Yeah. And and it's such a good point around the gatekeepers or we might call them like checkpoints. And mm-hmm. you mentioned a couple like in, in, in rendering or QA, QC that happen mm-hmm. within a firm. Mm-hmm. But if you zoom out, there's also these um, checkpoints um, externally, like the plan reviewer or, or right. building inspector. So you have these very like highly leveraged individuals who tend to get bogged down, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, going to like rendering bottlenecks. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Totally. So, so how do we empower the rest of the office to get it maybe, you know, 60, 70, 80 percent there mm-hmm. that these kind of critical roles um, can spend, you know, less time, but but very leveraged time to, to do a review, like QA, Q, QC. Right. And a big focus for us is actually flowing that knowledge and information back uh, to those more junior individuals from these mm-hmm. kind of very senior people. Mm-hmm. So you have institutional knowledge within a firm, because if you work on a certain project type, you tend to build up pretty deep expertise. Sure. But that expertise can be very asymmetrical over a firm. So how do we take the expert in retail? How do we take the expert in commercial? and help level up the rest of the office. Mm-hmm. So a big component for us is trying to capture those conversations, capture the code research done, so you can start to recycle and crib off of historical conversations. Right. So if you're a leader- that Every architectural project is based on that idea right there. <laughs> it's like, right. what can we take that we've done before and leverage that to give us a shortcut to get farther, faster on this next project because the pipeline and the throughput all matters, right? And I'd say to varying degrees, right? Some mm-hmm. some firms are really good at that, really yeah. good at bringing the historical uh, project and knowledge forward. And some maybe kind of let that slip between the cracks a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and not by design, I think just, you know, because right. they weren't thinking about retaining more and more of that information. But I mean, I was guilty of that when I was working, you know, trying to reinvent the wheel. Every time we have a project that comes in, hey, let's, let's do something new. Um, right. And starting from scratch. But I think a big component of that is trying to, yeah, capture a lot of a lot of those projects. Yeah. 
This episode is brought to you by Avail. Avail is the content management system you deserve. With its beautifully simple interface, Avail makes it easy to manage, organize, find, and use your information. Designed by designers for designers and engineers, the Avail platform takes advantage of visual acuity, allowing for a visual audience to identify what they need in a couple of clicks. Avail is designed to serve any content type from any file location and allow for simple, fast deployment of your content. Plus, thanks to powerful integrations with Revit and other applications, you can seamlessly incorporate Avail into all your workflows. Say goodbye to the headache of locating and managing content and say hello to efficiency. To learn more, visit getavail.com. Avail, the information you need faster. So so tell us about kind of what what this user experience is like with Copilot now, or maybe set the stage with what it what it has been. I think we've already kind of everybody kind of knows maybe what it's like to flip through code books and try to find the sections and try to find it and then try to decipher it and then try to apply it. And then upcodes came along. So let's start there with just kind of the journey that you guys have experienced over the last few years with and now a shift, I think, forward in the evolution of upcodes with with the copilot product. Yeah, absolutely. So where we started was aggregating the codes, bringing them together, mm-hmm. the amendments, integrating the amendments, and kind of building a, as broad of a library as we could, expanding to, to different jurisdictions, like different states, different cities. Um, and kind of, I mean, similar to like cracking open a book or, or a PDF or something like that, you're, you're still diving, you know, pretty deep into the, into the code. Now we we brought things like um, like search and you can start to cut through very very rapidly through different things. But you're imagine that yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Searching right. the building code, uh, incredible. <laughs> and I mean this I guess this gets into a different topic. But there's been so little innovation, especially in the code space and compliance space. That's really mm-hmm. what we're trying to trying to lean into. Well, because people actively avoid it. I mean it. The, yeah. To me, the the behaviors that surround the building code and just kind of the 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 lore and the legend and all you know it's it's not one of those things that you get trained in school as an architect to really dive into it's always an you you're aware it exists people will bring it up during critiques and juries oh yeah you need more than one exit in that room kind of a thing but it's always in passing and then you get to a real project and it's like now uh, we are responsible for the health safety and welfare of the inhabitants of these buildings as licensed or registered architects and like this is real this is the real deal now and and then there's this this giant book that you're staring at on the counter and right. and just surfacing the information that you need for your project in your jurisdiction in this construction type with this occupancy mix and all of those things it's like what a puzzle that we're all faced mm-hmm. with and so i think upcodes and the digitization of codes and what innovation could happen there just had had so much potential right from the start and, and just like you said, that that puzzle. So you, you have you have big books, you're trying to comb through it, and inevitably you're gonna miss a section, a, a more stringent section that might exist in a different chapter or or different mm-hmm. different book. So going back to your question about, you know, what's what was the previous landscape, what does it look like now? For us, AI and, and copilot is kind of a new portal into those codes. So it in a much more intelligent way can parse through all these different codes in very plain English, give you an overview. And if it's simple enough, maybe it gives you the answer. But at the very least, it's going to start to point you out to the right places 
and brings that code section into the answer. And that was a really big moment for us is, is when we realized, okay, it's not just a tech, it's not a black box that's going to spit out a, a code section. We're going to lean into the educational component. We're going to lean into getting people more and more familiar with the code. So it's almost more like routing people. So mm-hmm. it, it brings together maybe, you know, 10, 15 relevant sections of code referenced in, in the kind of plain English AI output, but highly encouraging people to get right back into the code, mm. but in a much more intelligent way, in, in a much more kind of surgical and, and precise way of, hey, jump into the fire code here, jump into the electrical code or the building code relevant to, to that question. Bringing that information to the user rather than them going down the rabbit hole and trying to find it themselves. I mean... I, I was first thinking, okay, the code is all about cross-referencing sections. And I mean, this is what the internet is really good at, right? This is what HTTP and hypertext, and it's it's really good at that. I mean, we've all experienced getting lost in the internet by following links, right? Mm-hmm. And it seems like an obvious application to something like the code because the code is all cross-referenced as well, but it, it was all manual. But now you've just flip the script. And instead of somebody going down the rabbit hole, you're bringing that information to them, kind of almost a recommendation engine or a suggestion engine that's saying, okay, you're looking at this. You probably need to look at this. You probably need to look at this. And you probably need to look at this, or you do need to look at this. And and just bringing that to the surface right in the very beginning. Exactly. And I think the really powerful part of the AI model is it can go down those rabbit holes, hundreds of thousands of those rabbit holes in a couple of seconds, and then choose... Yeah. the end result of the rabbit hole, maybe, you know, five or 10. So wow. you don't have to manually go down all the different rabbit holes. Um, I think that's exactly it. Just the kind of scalability of the model to, to lift out the relevant information, and just put it in front of you so you can make a yeah. better and, and more educated decision. So I definitely want to talk about accuracy and I want to talk, it, that's just something that keeps coming up when we're talking about like chat GPT, large language models, mm-hmm. training. It's just, can, can you, can you trust the results? Right. Um, so I definitely want to get there, but maybe before we get there, I want to talk about adoption because the whole point of democratizing this is obviously scale is going to be something that you're very interested in as the, the service provider the, with this platform. And so, and so tell us like what adoption has been like by creating a tool that has innovated on the building code, because I think this could apply to more than just upcodes and more than just the building code, but anybody who's working on a, a tech solution in AEC, because I think as a former head of digital practice in a firm, adoption is like one of the hardest nuts to crack in a firm. And People have to enjoy using your tool. People have to see the value. It has to be 10 times better than the thing they're used to doing. It has to, they have to see a case study to like prove to them that it's going to work before they even try it the first time. And so all of these things are kind of swimming around. I'm just wondering from your perspective, what, what adoption has looked like. Yeah. And ad- adoption, I would say is significantly more than we ever anticipated. Mm, um, awesome. So my background being in architecture and we started with a lot of codes kind of geared and oriented towards architects. But fast forward today, you know, many years later, we have over 650,000 individuals on the site every month. So over half a million people coming on and it's very, very diverse. So of course, architects, like I think, uh, no, that is the, the biggest uh, user segment, mm-hmm. but it's GCs, it's trades, homeowners, mm-hmm. owners, developers, 
plans examiners, building inspectors, and then some surprising ones too, like students or insurance companies. Um, so it's a really, really wide range of individuals on it. So going to the adoption side, I think more than we ever anticipated was the kind of breadth of um, how applicable it would be to to these different use cases. And kind of a, an interesting topic for us when developing the product is how do you have a very opinionated product where you're, you're building it for a couple of use cases where the audience is so broad? And I think what we really enjoyed about AI is that it can be very broad and we can mm -hmm. solve a lot of different use cases. So if you're a homeowner coming in, you're like, you know, I need a checklist for, for my, um, my deck or, or some kind of extension, or you're coming from, um, a daycare center and you want to understand like what's the uh, exit requirement or of course you know you're a professional designing a building those use cases are very very different or for instance different contexts maybe you're a building inspector on site and you're on your phone or your tablet so mm -hmm. not only different workflow but also different form factor of what you're actually using for the product right. so the adoption is has been a blessing but also like a challenge in a way because you I bet. you get pretty diverse uh, demands. Yeah, the user base is huge. I mean, when I was just thinking, I've done some remodeling in my house. I recently moved from one state to another. Different, different code that they've adopted here. And it's like when you're running a mechanical vent out of a bathroom, what's the diameter? What kind of, what do they accept? You know, and and what you might find on the shelf at Home Depot is not necessarily what the code requires, right? And so mm -hmm. it's it's like, as a homeowner, you're right. I mean, it's that's one type of user that you probably didn't start out looking to, like as a, as a target audience, right? Uh, you start more with like this mid-sized large firm. Uh, I, I can just see how that has probably grown. Like you just said, uh, there's just so many different use cases for this. And by democratizing it, it actually opens the door for normal people to understand how to access and put into practice the, the building code. I mean, that's, that's just phenomenal. And most of the growth and adoption to date has been organic. So things like word of mouth. So people sharing mm -hmm. it with colleagues, sharing it with friends, sending links through emails and things like that, or uh, through, you know, finding through Google. And that's driven most of the growth. But as a result of that, um, you know, we're, that growth hasn't been intentional. Like mm -hmm. I know other it companies you know, might do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And at one point in time, we mapped out, okay, what are the sizes of firms from sole practitioner to some of the biggest architecture firms in the country? And what's our distribution compared to the, the actual distribution? And that curve was almost exactly the same as, you know, wow. what makes up our, our industry. So, so you have the perfect cross-section of the industry mapped out and the adoption, you're, you're seeing it in, in all of those different kind of, I, I guess, horizontally across, which is what the code also is doing, right? It, it applies to all of these different scenarios. And I, that, that's pretty cool to see that. And in an interesting way, architecture has a, an unusual distribution of those firm sizes. So right. it's, it's overrepresented on the small and medium-sized firms compared to mm -hmm. larger firms. Right. When you compare that against other industries. So it's, it's, and the type of work done by those different firms, you know, varies pretty dramatically. So it goes back to that challenge of how do you build for all these different use cases when they do vary so much? And there's actually this very big representation on the small and medium, which is great because, and this goes down another rabbit hole, but uh, 
when it comes to user interviews and connecting with the community, it's, it's really nice when people are so invested in it and we can jump on the phone with sole practitioners and maybe 10, 20, 50 person firms, but then also firms that are hundreds of people big, but it, it does change uh, pretty significantly. Yeah. It, it just makes me feel good, Scott, that you guys have gone after this incredibly unsexy, ignored for the longest time problem in the industry. And to see the adoption that you are is really reassuring to me. And it just shows that the we have to get the fundamentals right for the really cool stuff, I think, to even catch on because the fundamentals are what affects the majority of the time of an architect and an engineer and the day-to-day -day life of those professionals. And when they see the value there, I think they're going to be more open to seeing the other topics that we talk about on this podcast and that are going on in, that are innovating on top of innovation in inside of AEC. So it actually, that, that just makes me feel hopeful that there is a, is a way forward because adoption, like I said earlier, is, has always been a struggle in AEC because we're so busy doing what we're already doing. And so it really does have to make a difference in the day-to-day -day first. Yeah, absolutely. And exactly like I said, it's not a glamorous space, right? Code, I mean, some people love code. Some people yeah. um, get in there and, and spend, you know, their whole day in code and absolutely love it. Yeah. But there's a huge percentage of, of the user base or just in any firm who, you know, this is not their favorite part of the day when they're jumping <laughs> right. into the code. Right. And totally. We're very conscious of that and try as much as possible. We call it getting out of the user's hair. And basically, mm -hmm. when it comes down to the usability, the UI, the UX, how do we make it as streamlined as possible such that they can focus more on the code? The code mm -hmm. is so complicated. We don't need to make the tool itself more complicated to make their day more challenging. Sure, of course. And that uh, goes through everything. So things like the pricing model, trying to make it as, as, as straightforward and cheap as possible. Um, the, the, the account management, setting up projects, bookmarks, all of that kind of surrounding UX, it's, we're trying to constantly make it more and more and more simple so that they can focus on the code. Yeah. And to your point about adoption, like it, it does need to be, you know, 10x as good as, as what they had before. And I think what we've really tried to lean into is the net promoter score. So for the folks listening, it's, it's just a way to kind of understand, are people enjoying the product and would mm -hmm. they recommend it to other people? The simplest way to measure that is saying, okay, on a scale of one to 10, what, how likely would you be to recommend this to someone else? And it's very simple, but pretty powerful. And through, you know, through the years, we've always maintained being in a uh, hundredth percentile in terms mm -hmm. of NPS when it comes to software. And I think with something that has the potential to be relatively dry for people with code, that uh, investment in UX and, and enjoyment of the product is so critical. I mean, I think it's always yeah. critical to your point yeah. about adoption, but especially in code. You've provided a perfect segue. Let's actually talk about what it's like to use upcodes for those who are not initiated uh, on the upcode site. And then I think this also is, is the point at which you want to start talking about the addition of Copilot and how that maybe has changed things with with the upcodes interface, because it also could be that somebody has used upcodes in the past, and now maybe there's an entirely different way to to use it. So, 
jump into that part. Yeah, absolutely. So, so to cover the past and what people might be familiar with, we've, we've always leaned into democratizing code and, and putting it out there um, for free and then building more sophisticated tools on top of that, that free access. Tools mm-hmm. that start to automate, start to help with collaboration and, and project uh, management. So the big difference now with the Copilot launch is providing an entire, entirely new entry point or portal into the code. So instead of cracking open, um, let's say Florida or, or maybe Washington State, instead of going to that jurisdiction, um, clicking on the building code, uh, maybe searching, combing through it, that entry or that user journey can be completely revised by starting in Copilot. Mm-hmm. And now you can say, you know, it can start very, very broad or it can be very, very specific. Now you, you get a text box and you can say what, um, you know, or generate a checklist for my egress um, and maybe throw in an occupancy type um, and, and a building type. And That's it'll awesome. start to spit out, okay, you know, check out these 10 different sections and it, it links out and references to those sections. So that's, you know, something on the, on the larger scope or can be very tactical, you know, going to a building inspector, what's, um, you know, what's the minimum width of, of a corridor, uh, in a hospital mm-hmm. or, or maybe on the single family resi, what's, you know, what's the handrail, uh, extension past the last, uh, the last stair mm-hmm. and it'll bring up those sections, but also just answer your question in, in place. This whole idea of natural language as an interface is huge. And to, to truly democratize something and for someone in, a, in plain language be able to type in a request or a query or uh, a command is just such a big deal. Like anybody in an office can now use a tool like this. Anybody, right? Anybody can form a question or whatever the the input typology is, I think normally it's going to be a question, right? But it's like anybody can ask a question. And I think that's the most powerful thing about what we're seeing with all of the AI large language model products that are out there is just, okay, what comes back aside? Just that interface, just being a prompt is huge. And what you're talking about to me takes me back to the days of multiple search engines on the internet, like Yahoo and Alta Vista, which was a directory of information. And like you said, it's like you dive in one level and then that presents another level. And then you go into that next level and it presents another level deeper and you keep going down and down and down. And then Google came along and completely flipped the model. And all you had to do was search for a term and it surfaces results based on that. You didn't have to click, click, click deeper, deeper, deeper anymore. You, you still could do that, but the very first interaction was just the prompt, the text box on, on a white screen, right? And to me, I think this is, it's really powerful to simplify the interface that much where it's just a text box. And that freeform text box makes it more approachable by a wider audience and firm. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, using a really simple example here, but glass versus glazing or the kind of the lingo that you, you do in the vernacular, you pick up through years of experience, but now it's much more approachable. The, the exact phrasing matters a little bit less when you're starting. Now, mm-hmm. the phrasing will matter a lot, of course, like when you're getting to the code. But for us, if you're saying a guardrail versus handrail or... Uh, different concepts and you don't phrase it quite right it has a lot of buffer to still get the answer right like you Mm -hmm. can you know there it 
it provides a lot more um, uh, ability to parse messiness in the query, I guess a wider funnel at the top. So it, it can bring in more and more people from uh, from the firm. And on an in, in kind of related topic, like you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned this earlier before, but I just want to kind of circle back to it. But this chatbot actually has the ability to ask you questions back, which mm -hmm. I think is a really, really powerful thing. Yeah. And now for the first time, um, for us at least, we're having a back and forth. So you might ask a query and you might say, what's what's the width of the corridor? Well, you know, that varies dramatically. Are you talking about sure. a single family residential home or are you talking about a hospital or something commercial and what's above it and what, what are the um, occupant loads? So before it would be very, very hard to parse that. We would just have to pull up everything under the sun that could be related to that. And, and there's a lot related to that. Yeah. But now we can say, okay, well, you might want to look at these sections, but even better, what, what's your what's your project type? What what are you working on? Where are you located? Context and to have this establish that context. Yeah, that that is that is cool. I think that one of the examples you talked about a minute ago was like um, provide a checklist of things that I need to pay attention to. I think that that is so powerful because that would be a question that I would go ask the wizard in the corner, right? Hey, do you have a checklist? Do you have a like a a rule book for this kind of project that you can give me as a starting point. And now I can ask the software to do that. <clears throat> and the software knows about code updates, I would assume. It knows what's changed and how recently and, and things to look out for. And I think it could probably be even more appropriate in its response than even somebody who's been working in the code because things do update and you can't know everything about everything. Like you just said, we, we don't know what we don't know. And so for it to bring that to our attention early is, is incredible. I think of other use cases that, that you could ask a system like this early on in a project. There's so many. It's, it's just like, what do I need to be aware of? What are the code sections that people miss? I, I could just see there being so many kinds of queries in a system like this to really gain someone the experience they need right when they need it on demand rather than having to have the the years and years of experience which isn't a bad thing but it's not something that's actually happening either right like you said people are kind of avoiding this this whole section of the practice for the most part and this is opening doors to people having a better understanding of the code and by providing a tool that makes it easy to apply it on their project is a big deal exactly this episode is sponsored by Confluence. I've invited Randall Stevens, the CEO of Avail, to tell you about it. In 2019, we held the inaugural Confluence event, which was designed to bring together the product managers, the technology developers that are working on the products used daily in the AEC industry, and put them in the room with the design technology leaders from the practice side that are actually implementing and using these technologies. The goal isn't to sell anybody anything at these events. The goal is to get a better understanding of what's working, what's not working, and what would be the best products to develop to be implemented in the AECO industry. We've held these three-day confluence events the past four years and attracted over 100 attendees. We have an exciting agenda plan for our annual event in October. The theme this year is going to be focused around AI and machine learning and its applications in the AEC industry. You can learn more about Confluence at getavail.com slash confluence. 
And on the topic of updated code, we update over 7,000 sections of code every single month. So wow. 5 million sections on the website, over 7,000 get updated a month across all the different jurisdictions. So it's very much a moving target. Yeah. And there are really good checklists out there. You can find like, I think it's mm -hmm. Los Angeles County um, and, and a couple of other AHAs have very, very good checklists. Challenge being they're very static mm -hmm. and they, they're kind of frozen in time. Now, right. maybe in a year or two, they could get, a, get an update. But that's a one size fits all static checklist that you know tries to cover this large swath. The reality is everything's dynamic. The, the foundation, the codes underneath are constantly changing. And your specific situation, where you're located, your project type, occupancies, is going to affect that checklist. All right. So for us, we, we had a lot of user requests coming in for checklists. And we always knew we wanted to tackle it and make that kind of feature, but couldn't wrap our heads around how do we make it scalable? <laughs> right. Like how do we not put yeah. out yeah. things that could just be a blog post? Um, and this is starting to uh, provide that way where it's it's kind of infinitely scalable based on your inputs and for every individual they're going to get a different checklist because they deserve a different yeah. checklist and they need a different checklist so let's talk about accuracy here because you're talking about something that is starting to get more specific around project types and and, and let's just say you know for for the topic here that the checklist is um you know it's tailored to a specific project type in a specific jurisdiction and so give us what what are the I mean, it does seem like accuracy is a potential pitfall here. It could give you the wrong. How do you double check? What are you guys seeing as far as accuracy on the output? What's the feedback that you're getting? Because uh, if you have a, a young emerging professional using a tool like this, I think the the natural inclination is to accept it as the answer. Whereas like somebody who's been practicing for 30 years might say, oh, I would never do this, uh, it, it missed this kind of a thing. And is there a way to then like reinforce the model with additional training based on that experience that does exist out there? Yeah, and, and just to zoom out a little bit, there is um, a site you can look at. I think Washington Post might have posted the article, but you can see what data went into train chat GPT from OpenAI and Google Bard. How did they find that out? I don't think that they published that themselves, did they? I mean, OpenAI didn't, but but it sounds like some investigative reporting happened here. So <laughs> it was actually a third party who provided the oh, data. Okay. So it's called Common Crawl C4 Dataset. And Common Crawl, just like it sounds, they go around the internet and they scrape and they bring together massive, massive data sets, kind of like Google Search would do for, for its search mm -hmm. results. Mm-hmm. Um, they comb the internet, pull it together into a huge data set, and that's the data set that went on to train ChatGPT and Google Bard. Now, uh, Common Crawl actually offers a way to see what websites have been scraped. So we went in there, uh, didn't really know what to expect. We said, you know, did our data contribute to these models? Hmm. And as it turns out, we're in the top 0.01% of websites that contribute data. So um, wow. I forgot how many million millions of tokens we we contributed to it but our a lot of the laws and the content we host it was very very uh, substantive in terms of training these these models i would imagine this plays back into that lawsuit we started <laughs> talking about potentially because it's like is this proprietary data should something that that is required on all projects be considered proprietary data that that no one else has access to and so using it as training data 
I mean, we've talked, I've at least thought about, I don't think we've talked about it on this podcast before, but the whole ethical side of what the training data is, where it's coming from, was there permission, all of those things. I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot going on on that side of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, um, I, I guess from our perspective, all of these adopted codes enter law and fortunately all the case law and the judges have come down on the same side to kind of firmly put that um, into into the public domain. So when we're looking at these LLMs and, and more generic AIs, it's actually high quality data, like the American laws that are actually training it along mm -hmm. with a lot of uh, other things. And the other areas that are not, let's say like law, I think that is a really interesting topic, right? Like yeah, what yeah. goes into these models and to kind of circle back to the question about accuracy. So we have the codes we host uh, and they're out there, you know, for free and in, in the public, but then we incorporate other information to give those answers mm. um, in addition to setting up filters. So when you're jumping into a question, we can start to fence in around the right up-to-date data because these uh, generic um, LLMs have a snapshot. I think it was probably roughly the last time we spoke in 2021, I believe was the last snapshot they took. So All right. going back to 7,000 sections updated a month, we can say, okay, you're in California, but we're, you're using the most up-to-date code for this answer. So now we've, we've kind of constrained it. We've roped it into a jurisdiction. We've yeah. roped it into a certain time period, or you can go historical. You can say, let's, let's use a historical set of codes for different permitting date. And that's a, a a really significant way to increase the the accuracy compared to the generic uh, LLM. So that's what I was going to mention before yeah. is despite contributing all this data, it was a snapshot from a while ago and you get kind of older out of date codes, but also just very generic across the whole US where the reality is it changes pretty significantly, you know, to your your example about the uh, the pipe uh, right. piping size moving states. Right. So um and then the kind of another category I'd say is weaving in more content. So very soon we're going to bring in our educational content, the diagrams, which start to explain and unpack different code concepts. And then that becomes yet another kind of source of information that we can feed into, into mm -hmm. the AI response. Yeah. The, the new features that are, are showing up in what OpenAI is talking about, where they draw a diagram, feed it into the system, and it makes a working website off of a, a really poor napkin sketch of a, of a website, right? It's like I could see application of things like this in architecture, right? Where somebody can draw a very simple diagram and feed it into the system and have that be the basis of search results. But also like you're, you're talking about like maybe potentially training data or capturing the wisdom of the individuals who sit in the corners in these offices before they retire to apply that to the tool set in the office to make it easier for other people to get down the right track sooner in the things that they specialize in, I think would be absolutely incredible to be able to, to, to somehow do that. And so in which ways are you guys capturing or, you know, like threading in the, the additional information? Is there a way to capture the knowledge of individuals and, and actually get that in there somehow? Is it feeding existing drawings or models or anything into the system to be able to do that? Yeah, great, great question. So I'd break that down into two different areas. So one is the content UpCodes has produced. And I think we have now over a thousand or 1.1 thousand 
um, diagrams that start to, you know, unpack mm -hmm. the code. Mm -hmm. And that and that's, you know, available on the site um, currently. And that's going to add in a whole nother layer. But those are things produced by us. And what kind of diagrams before, before, before you move yeah. into the part two? Like what, just give us an, a couple examples of what kind of diagrams you're talking about. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, so things like calculating occupant load. Like, how do you do that? Mm. Um, kind of layering it on top of the code, giving examples, giving diagrams, um, a high level overview. Trying Such to a big deal. Yeah. Train That's up awesome. and kind of elevate people's understanding of the code mm -hmm. or highly technical things like a uh, like an assembly or a detail. So here's like a fire rated wall. How does it interface with, mm -hmm. say, a penetration or a duct coming through the wall? What, you know, what does that look like? It's kind of hard to picture that when it's just a wall of text when you're looking at the code. Right. Totally. So bringing up examples and, um, yeah, yeah, again, like diagrams or assemblies or kind of like line drawings and then a plain English overview of what that actually means. I think this is such a big, under, you can't understate how important this is or overstate, I don't know the right word, but it's, it's like the, the aversion because this is a text-based resource in a very visual field is mm -hmm. I think the kind of obvious <laughs> observation that I can make right there. It's like, this is why so many people avoid this and specifications. It's like uh, text, no thanks. I don't read books, I draw drawings and I read drawings and I talk about things in three dimensions and and I can just see the kind of misalignment that happens in our field. And so to be able to marry diagrams with text is gonna be such a huge part of adoption, like successful adoption. If you can do that at scale i mean that just seems like an incredible uh i don't know like just it just is going to unlock this for so many more people and it is one of our most um popular features for exactly that mm. you have these highly creative individuals who are working in you know at least 2d creative but more most likely in 3d creative and then you throw a phone book in front of them Right. expect them to go through and be excited about digging through hundreds of pages of, of text. Now that's a and, paperweight, man. Yeah, literally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. So I, I interrupted you. You were you wanted to break my question down into two pieces. Do you remember what the right. second piece was? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so it's what additional data can you train the model on? And the the first component of that was our own data that's going above and beyond the code to to help parse it mm -hmm. and, and train mm -hmm. the model. But number two is is coming from the users. And we're very keen and aware of the privacy aspect of that. And this, you know, we can get into a huge uh, kind of interesting uh, rabbit hole about, you know, other things like OpenAI and what does privacy look like there? Are you contributing right. to training their model? But the way we look at it is within a firm. So if you're, let's say, like a large or, or it doesn't really matter, but any architecture firm, how do you better recycle that historical context that all the conversations you've had in the past. Right. And that's exactly where we're moving is to say, you're going to utilize that. Your data is going to train your version of the model or it's going to inform the answers for your firm, but not everyone else's answers. So you can be mm. a lot more confident to put more data in there and it'll be uh, kind of siloed or have a firewall. So mm -hmm. um, your firm will keep reaping the benefits uh, versus sharing it. Um, now that that's kind of where we're netting out or landing. I, I do think there is a downside to that, but it's kind of the nature of the industry where firms can be a little bit competitive with one mm -hmm. another. They don't necessarily want their details or, you know, their decisions to, you know, uh, disseminate to, to other, other firms. So 
you know, personally, I, I think we could benefit from from sharing notes a little bit more uh, from kind of collaborating right. a lot like the software industry right. does. But uh, at the same time, we, we need to kind of respect what uh, the users are requesting. It, it, there's a double edged sword there, right? Because the, the whole idea of that being your secret sauce, your IP when it comes to how you produce deliverables, but then at the same time, to your point, like you can raise more boats and make a stronger profession by sharing this information. I think about the high par model, at least as it was kind of stated early on, which was like encode your knowledge into a function and then sell it on our marketplace. I don't know if that's gone anywhere on in high par, but but then you could potentially monetize that as an income stream because you do have expertise there and it is valuable and it is useful. And maybe it's a very small amount, but at least then it kind of justifies the work that went into using that information for someone else's benefit, right? Like actually capturing it, actually using it to train the model, but then somebody else benefits from that. Couldn't you benefit from doing that process? Absolutely. And and maybe Maybe there's opportunities there. I, I I don't think you're trying to create a marketplace for for firms w with building code stuff, but it does seem like um, there's a lot to talk about there. And 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 to get outside of a firm's echo chamber and have those kinds of conversations, I think is really important at the national level because there are benefits to sharing that kind of stuff versus keeping it all inside the the silo. Yeah, I, absolutely. And there's a good analogy in in software development. With open source. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of open source packages and they all build on one another like building blocks. And it provides a really, really robust foundation that when you launch your product, you can utilize a lot of these packages right. and you can give back and right. you can contribute to existing packages, up level those. Someone else might come along and, and you know, take the baton and, and run with it. Um, or, or companies or individuals contribute new open source packages. And it's a really interesting study because I think on balance, like you're saying, the the rising tide can potentially lift all boats. And I think it really has in software. And mm -hmm. it's it's uh, a little bit of paying it forward, um, contributing back into the ecosystem. And and I do see that it's it's a little bit difficult where your your knowledge, your expertise is kind of what you sell when it comes in, in terms of architecture and and design. But I think there's probably some balance we can do there where we are sharing notes. We're lifting the whole industry as, a, um, um, you know, by sharing all all the notes, but retaining maybe some of them and retaining yeah. some institutional knowledge. But uh, yeah, I do really appreciate how open a lot of the software developers are in terms of like putting things out there, from small to big. Like even Facebook right. is putting out and and Microsoft pretty pretty large, um, uh, open source packages. Yeah. Is your firm suffering from an illness common in the AEC industry? Mediocre IT support syndrome, also known as MITS syndrome. Common symptoms include not submitting a ticket because your IT provider takes too long to respond, losing access to your files and having to deal with the issue yourself, or not getting advice and guidance on the latest tools and software because your IT provider doesn't understand your business. When you're focusing on these problems, you are not working on your next big project. We call this quiet suffering. If you've ever thought about your IT support as it could be worse, it's time to shake things up and get back to health with your IT. It could be much better. Think about it. If your customer is building a hospital, would they hire an architecture firm specializing in residential ADUs? Why are you putting up with a mediocre IT service delivered by a generic IT provider? 
ArcIT only supports architecture, design, and engineering firms at a price that would pleasantly surprise you. Let them take care of your IT so you can focus on doing your best work. Head over to their website, read the reviews, review their pricing. Yes, you heard that right. They put their pricing right on their website. And of course, request a free consultation at getarchit.com. G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. Maybe nuts and bolts question. Uh, how are you actually, what kind of tools are you using to create and train your own chatbot? I, I, I'm interested in this personally. Uh, I don't know how willing you are to, to talk about this stuff. Maybe this is your own secret sauce. So feel free to just say no, but I, I'm in, I am interested in, in learning how, because, because if a firm out there has information, are there ways that they could even apply start to apply this kind of thinking to the resources that they have to do some of this kind of training? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe because there is a little bit of secret sauce there, maybe I won't go sure. into the specifics of our own implementation, but just talking in general, um, there are a lot of packages and and tools out there, whether they're open source or, or not, that you can start to combine. And I think it's when you combine them is is where you get a lot of the kind of interesting innovations. Mm. Um, Google early on had a really good uh, kind of phrase, it's combinatory innovation. And it's, it's taking these innovations in adjacent industries, combining them in a unique way that presents a whole new uh, opportunity in in your own industry or your own mm. space. And they did mm -hmm. that a bunch with things like search or or Gmail or, or Drive. Um, new things came up that they could have a very kind of insightful take on on those products. And I think in a similar way, when firms are thinking about it, the probably the what will help them most is seeing the landscape, keeping their finger on the pulse and saying, what what can we combine that can give us a new opportunity to create a, a new a new tool? That being said, the landscape is changing so rapidly, like every week, right? Like I right. subscribe to like a weekly update yep. for all the AI uh, updates and it's moving so fast right. that you do need to be very, very nimble in a way that you didn't before because there's things coming on the scene every week and they can be more powerful and you don't want to invest too deeply in something uh, that you you know, tool that maybe came out a month ago because it might be surpassed in, in, in another month or two and you need to faster than ever be combining these different tools together so so yeah another double-edged sword that the whole idea of getting in there and messing with this stuff so that you understand it is really important because if you don't if if you're if you hear that and you think okay i'm just gonna wait like this is clearly moving so fast it's a freight train i can't just grab on and go with it because it's just moving too fast and whatever i invest in now could potentially be obsolete in a very short period of time that's not, I don't, I don't think that's the right approach. I think the right approach is to dip your toes in, get your feet wet and learn how this could potentially apply because your subconscious will then take that experience and just start spinning the gears on it and something else will come out and you'll be like, oh, well, this unlocks that thing that I ran into and now I can take it further. I think one of the, one of the things that I saw early as a pitfall, a potential pitfall was train a train a thing with all your data and then you can throw your data away it's like no you're probably going to have to train another one later so keep all of that information <laughs> handy 
don't get rid of it because because I mean uh, every architect out there is sitting on mountains and mountains of data that they don't know what to do with, and so now there's potential applications for that. So if you do do some training, don't toss the training data. You're likely going to have to train it again or again or again or a different product, right? So uh, a, a couple things to be thinking about when it comes to this, but I think. It is important to get started so that you can leverage it when those aha moments present themselves because you already know what to do in that circumstance and you're not starting from scratch three years from now because you're not going to wait any longer then. It, it, exactly. And and just to highlight one thing you mentioned of you know sitting on mountains of data, no one knew, but these mountains of data and data sets would be the gold mines of the future mm-hmm. because these LLMs that kind of burst onto the scene require these these um, proprietary and or or otherwise just just data sets right so absolutely don't like th- don't um you know throw those away like there is tremendous value there and you know for better or worse um our industry has been a little bit guarded in terms of sharing data like we were just mentioning before mm-hmm. the end result of that is that the data can be very siloed but very valuable so it's going to be a very interesting next couple of years where we're different people look to connect different uh, data sets to build these tools. And I don't exactly know what that would look like, but it could right. be firms partnering, firms collaborating, maybe, um, you know, providing APIs to different, different tools. So there's that component of sitting on these, these gold mines. In terms of uh, getting involved, getting your hands dirty, building the tools, I, I would highly recommend that, that as well. And it's, it's kind of like company building. You're, you're most likely going to go through some pivots. You're going to mm-hmm. start in one place and it you almost never end up in the same kind of trajectory where you started. You're going to learn things along the way. You're going to soft pivot or hard pivot from there and you're going to be adaptable. But same thing with AI and a lot of these new tools. You don't really know how to adapt or 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 pivot if you don't have familiarity and institutional knowledge of those tools. Right. So if you jump in, you get familiar maybe the, the ultimate end product that you'll ship in the future is not what you started with, but at least you got started. You, you, your team is familiar with it. They can start to pivot. They can start to change. And when that real opportunity comes along, you can jump on it much more quickly. Yeah. So carve time out to do this thing. Like that, I think, is the hardest part for architects. It's like instead of just being uh, somebody who watches this happen from a distance is to get involved uh, and and realize that there is there is a high potential future value in getting involved in this because if you strictly are just somebody who watches it from from afar it will pass you by and and i i don't mean that in like you could never get started it you, it could be too late but you will be much farther behind in the learning curve than somebody else and and the whole like you know that on on some level like there's a lot of hype around this stuff. But but you're here today to kind of talk about the value that it's added to the product that you make and that you're putting out into the world. And so maybe I'm not the right salesman for this. You're you're a way better in a way better position to be the right salesman for this, especially when it comes to copilot and upcodes. Um just talk about the value that it's created because nobody saw this coming, right, Scott? <laughs> this is one of those things where we all had this data sitting around because we're we're data hoarders and we grew up in the we we saved as we save as we save as we have all these different versions of our files for all the years and 
the millennials can thank us later because we we knew how to file structure and directories worked and all that stuff and my kids today don't even know what a file is they don't know where it is they don't know how to like it it's it's funny to think about but um but now because the, all of that data has been hoarded it can be used for training and especially in your case with upcodes being able to use that for a product that is available today like i mean i think that's absolutely you're, you're a great case study in kind of making the case for jumping into a tech like this that that's just recently presented itself and you're already taking advantage of it to add value for architects across the board and and i do want to um note that we see this as the early innings like this mm -hmm. is just the you know i wouldn't even call it a v1 i'd call it a, a v0.1 like this is the very first iteration and over the coming months, the coming years, it'll it'll constantly evolve and, and constantly get more and more sophisticated. Um, and our original goal is to be a tool that augments professionals and, and, right. and folks trying to parse through the code. Before Copilot, uh, in a survey, I think we were around uh, five hours a month we would save per individual with all the existing tools. And jumping in, starting to kind of integrate that into the overall product, I think we can move that from five hours dramatically more maybe mm. maybe 10 or, or or 15 so i think getting in there seeing what it can do gives you the ability to a you know start saving more time right away or providing value to the end user but then also helps you work with the end user to define the roadmap and that's yeah. a whole nother topic but i think really important which is if people are interested in getting involved you can do it within your own company but you could also get on a customer advisory board or user research or just collaborate with some of these companies or, or products working in the space. And we work really, really closely with the community. And, you know, going back to getting it in their hands, getting it out there, it opens up that opportunity to collaborate, say, you know, how can we make this tool better for you? And mm -hmm. they get to see kind of how the tool is being created, get a little bit more exposure, and then we can, you know, make a tool that is hopefully a little bit more applicable to them. So um so yeah I'll, I'll just go back to saying it, it is still early days we're really happy we move so fast because we're starting to learn and get so much kind of valuable feedback that that's starting to queue up the roadmap for the next couple months and then who knows for the next couple couple years where where it goes the opportunity to get involved in the creation of a tool that helps yourself is like designing it from with input from the inside to me is much different it's a much different scenario than having somebody else from the outside who's not in aec create a product come at aec with it and try to sell it to aec there's a totally different landscape of of like solving this for for us by us us being the community that you're talking about i think is is super valuable and for you to be so accessible and available and wanting of that is is a testament to the kind of company that you are and and i think that 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 should matter to architects and they should see that there is value in that collaboration and that partnership to make make tools for our industry to make it better i think that that's something worth worth repeating it it always blows me away we'll we'll jump on a call and one of the very first things we say is okay this tool is for you how can we uh, change the tool or, or better uh, create this tool or, or you know uh, modify it to make your day easier what exactly would you like to see and 
and don't sugarcoat it, you know, say, you know, and it doesn't need to be like the end result, but just talk to me through your pain points. What are the existing pain points and which ones are worse than others? And the, the surprising part is, is the reaction to that question. And clearly, you know, they've a never seen it They're before or be rarely heard it. <laughs> so there's a lot of a shock when we first jump into these calls and it's like, whoa, like, you know, I've never been asked that before, but like, let me think out loud and I'll, I'll list these things. And it's, it's so beneficial. And, and that is the end result. Like the only ambition here is to make that tool as valuable and as helpful for you as the end user is, is possible. And the only way to do that, to keep your finger on the pulse of, of, you know, what people want is just simply ask them, what, mm -hmm. what do you want? And right. it's so simple, but so few people do it. It's, it's just kind of astounding to us and it, you know, how simple of a process, but valuable that, uh, that is. Well, I appreciate your ambition. This has been a fantastic conversation. And is there anything else that, that you want to put out there on this episode to point people toward or any topics that we haven't quite gotten uh, out in this conversation that you think are, are worth wrapping up with? Um, I think we covered all the, the major uh, topics there. And I, I would just encourage people to, to you know, get on there and, um, you know, reach out with feedback and just, just engagement, no matter what component of, of the product or, or adjacent spaces, like we're always looking to iterate and improve the core product, Copilot, of course, which just launched, but also like the, the diagrams we were talking about before, or the code calculators and things like that, we're, we're just constantly kind of shaping and improving it, but also mm -hmm. looking in other spaces, other things we might tackle in the next couple of quarters. So yeah, I would just highly encourage, you know, whether it's reaching out to us at Upcodes or any of the companies in the software world in AC, it's a you know very small world. There's only you know a handful of companies working to make software for architects. So I think just getting involved, um, uh, connecting with them, speaking with them, and, and just making it a much more collaborative effort will, I think, help everybody in the space. Yeah. Great. Well, I appreciate the conversation today, Scott. This has been fantastic. And uh, I look forward to what you guys come up with next. Great. And, and so good to connect again and um, looking forward to staying in touch. Right. Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to our members this week. Find out how you can become a member at trxl.co. And I'll talk to you again next week.